Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret, we managed to avoid another government shutdown over funding for Planned Parenthood. Congress passed a stopgap measure that would keep the government running. President Obama signed the measure, which extended the government funding until December 11th, when there is likely to be another budget showdown. Unfortunately, we all remember the last time the GOP shut down the government. That one cost the nation about $24 billion in lost revenues. Even hardline opponents of funding for Planned Parenthood weren't willing to take responsibility for another shutdown and the ensuing ramifications, at least at this point. Nonetheless, Margaret, Republican demands to end Medicaid funding and federal grants for Planned Parenthood aren't going away. And with the House Speaker John Boehner stepping down and new, possibly more conservative leadership stepping in, you can be sure there will be continued efforts to defund Planned Parenthood, an organization that provides health and family planning services to some of our most vulnerable populations. And I'm not sure how many people are familiar with just how many people Planned Parenthood takes care of. And of the estimated 2.7 million patients that they serve, many are uninsured, underinsured, uh, or young people who are just not accustomed to navigating the healthcare system. The organization provides millions of cancer screenings per year, saving lives in the process. And for many, the only place they feel comfortable getting treatment for STDs, for accessing family planning services, or just getting some good information. Still a vital front line of healthcare for so many in our country. Absolutely, Margaret. And equitable access to healthcare for all is something our guest is quite passionate about. Dr. Georges Benjamin is the executive director of the American Public Health Association, an organization dedicated to improving population health in communities where people live, work, play, and learn. And as we shift away, hopefully from paying for illness to focusing on ways that we can prevent illness and be healthier, we have to take a look at evidence-based practices that improve health and wellness at the granular level. And Dr. Benjamin has long been in the trenches as the former commissioner of health for the state of Maryland also for the District of Columbia, and we really look forward to hearing from him. Lori Robertson, Stop Spy. She's the managing editor of factcheck.org, always on the hunt for misstatements, spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll get to our interview with Dr. Georges Benjamin in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Healthcare is having its Y2K moment after 36 years with one set of medical billing codes under the ICD-9 system. ICD-10 is now here. And while a majority of the nation's hospitals and large practices were prepared for the switch October 1st, a number of smaller practices and more rural facilities aren't quite there yet. Government and private insurers can reject claims that aren't specific enough, use the wrong codes, or have a mismatch between diagnosis and procedure code. Payers and providers are bracing for issues because this far more complex set of alphanumeric codes is going to provide a host of nuanced data never seen before in medical records. And one misplaced decimal point, and you could have problems on one end. There are codes for things as complex as being sucked into a jet engine, incidents related to in-law troubles, and an incident with a hockey stick. You name it, it's there. 
Agreement has been reached between Kaiser Permanente and its health service unions. It's flu season, the time when most health care workers are required to get the flu shot to reduce the chance for co-infection. But not all health workers want to get the shot. So a coalition of unions representing Kaiser Permanente health workers in the nation's largest private sector talks this year have ratified a landmark agreement, including a jointly developed flu vaccination policy for health care workers. Workers will get a seasonal flu vaccination or wear a surgical mask during flu season while working in patient care areas under the negotiated policy, which takes on an important issue of public health and safety by protecting more than 10 million Kaiser Permanente health plan members and patients. Breastfeeding does indeed have many added benefits, but according to one study, it doesn't enhance a baby's IQ significantly. The idea that breastfeeding might have an effect on cognition is plausible since long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are important in neurological development, are more plentiful in breastfed babies. But according to the study published recently in PLOS One, British researchers studied more than 11,000 children born between 1994 and 1996. About two-thirds were breastfed for an average of four months. They followed them through age 16 and administered intelligence tests at regular intervals. They found girls who had been breastfed had a weak but statistically insignificant advantage in early life over those who had not been, but the effect was not apparent in boys. The breastfeeding wasn't associated with gains in IQ through adolescence for either girls or boys, according to the study. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Georges Benjamin, who's been the director of the American Public Health Association since 2002. Dr. Benjamin served as secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and as acting commissioner of public health in the District of Columbia. Prior to that, Dr. Benjamin served as chief of emergency medicine at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He's been a member of the National Academy of Medicine and serves on many boards, including Research America. He's the publisher of the Nation's Health in the American Journal of Public Health and has written over 100 articles. His latest book is The Quest for Health Reform, a Satirical History. He earned his MD at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. Dr. Benjamin, welcome to Conversations in Healthcare. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, the APH uh, is focused in on promoting the nation's public health, which uh, you define as protecting the health of people in the communities where they live and uh, play. And the science of public uh, health has been evolving rapidly in recent years uh, to advanced evidence-based. I wonder if you could share with our listeners uh, how the APHA helps improve public health. Well, we spend a fair amount of our time um, both uh, educating uh, people who practice public health and making sure their skills are are, are up to date, but also we work um, to educate the broad public to try to make the, you and I more health literate um, around um, how to improve our health. Uh, we also advocate um, with our, both our federal government and at the local level um, for adequate funding and resources to promote public health. Uh, and we, we do some other things. We publish a journal. We have a big annual meeting and, and try to engage people in a conversation uh, around how to improve your health. And our ultimate goal is try to help try to make the healthy choice the easy choice. 
Well, Dr. Benjamin, I think that we would say that the cause of public health, we think, has advanced considerably under the passage of the Affordable Care Act. The nation's attention certainly has been on the efforts to defund Planned Parenthood, an organization that serves the health and preventive needs of millions of American men and women and young people. And Congress was threatening to defund not only Planned Parenthood, but also to repeal and eliminate the Prevention and Public Health Fund, something I don't think the American uh, attention has been so focused on. You sent an urgent request, I understand, to the House Committee overseeing the Prevention and Public Health Fund to try and rescind that threat. Tell us about the fund and who and what it serves and why would its elimination be so damaging to the cause of public health? Well, you know, we spend only about 3% of uh, the over $2.5 trillion we spend on health care on public health and prevention. You know, we spend a lot of money if, you, if something goes wrong. Nor do we spend enough money on things that occur when something bad happens, like a bowl outbreak. So the prevention fund was designed to begin having a, a pot of money that the public health system broadly, nationally, at the state, federal level, could use to address emerging health needs uh, to try to improve our health. And the Congress does appropriate those dollars, but there are members of Congress that are concerned about the, the amount of flexibility that uh, the administration has um, and the public health system has in general in administering those funds. Now, it, it's tragic that, that they don't have those same questions about the huge pots of money, much larger than the right. couple billion dollars that we have for the Defense Department. Right. But this small amount of money, which is frankly a, um, what we call budget dust or a rounding error, uh, they're basically trying to send a political statement. What, what do those dollars do? Well, they help vaccinate kids. They help support your public health laboratory. They helped with many of the outbreaks of disease that we've had in the country. Um, they build resources and training. And what's important is that within the center, most of the money goes to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, and if you look at the CDC's overall budget, almost 70% of those dollars go to local communities. So in, in many cases, they're basically cutting the funds that are going to local communities to ensure that we're healthy. One of the programs that the Prevention Fund worked on um, was the child obesity problem, you know, mm-hmm. trying to help children lose weight, um, come to ideal body weight, which we know is going to be a significant threat to our health. And in addition, it's going to cost us a whole lot of money if we don't um, get our hands around it. We're all spending a lot of time dealing with these broader threats uh, to public health and, and health reform. And, you know, clearly there's looks like there's a changing of guard uh, happening in the House of Representatives. And again, we're hearing the drumbeat for uh, calls to overturn the health care law. And sort of we're going to continue to have these challenges, and particularly with the Affordable Care Act now covering over 17 million previously uninsured Americans. And how do you frame this up? What's what's most concerning to you in terms of losing governmental support on on exactly what you said, which was 70% of these dollars going through the CDC are going back to local communities where all these legislators uh, live, work, play, and, uh, and uh, get elected from? You know, one of the challenges is, is you look at the whole issue and debate about health reform, people focus on cost and they focus on coverage. But what is all this about? It's about making sure that people are healthy. So we know, for example, that prior to us trying to advance the effort on health reform, 44,000 people died prematurely simply because they didn't have health insurance. What isn't getting reported yet, but it will be, is that as we have expanded coverage, less people are dying. Mm-hmm. Um, the mortality rates are actually falling through the floor in many, in many communities. 
takes a while, but we're beginning to see improvements in the process of care, which we know from some good studies ultimately result in improved health outcomes. I've been around a long time, so I've you know I, I've seen us put money in systems and then unfund them, um, and then the problems come back with a vengeance, and then we have to put more money in to solve the problem. We saw that with tuberculosis, uh, as as an example. We're seeing those with vaccine preventable diseases. Um, which we've never really adequately funded. And then when you have people who who have pushed back on vaccine-preventable diseases, mm-hmm. um, the one-two punch uh, really has resulted in, you know, outbreaks like we saw in, in uh, with the measles in, in California. We're seeing, for example, after 9-11, we spent a fair amount of money as a nation trying to improve the public health response for infectious disease emergencies and other serious um, threats like terrorism. But They've started cutting the money. Mm-hmm. And what will happen? You know, people get laid off. You started dramatically underfunding your police department, your fire department. Then something happened, and all of a sudden you thought overnight you could rebuild it. doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's happening with public health. It's being whittled away uh, on a dramatic basis and, frankly, for ideological reasons. Uh, and these same folks will be, will, will be complaining mm-hmm. and concerned Uh, and wanting to find someone to blame when something bad happens. Well, one uh, area, Dr. Benjamin, where we always have to be somewhat future-focused because it takes a while is the pipeline around our health professionals, all of the health professions. And I know the Public Health Association recently co-signed yet another plea to Congress to continue to support funding for HRSA's Title VII health professions and the Title VIII nursing workforce development programs for fiscal year 2016, and certainly uh, in good company with 50 other organizations from the American Association of Nurse Practitioners to the American College of Physicians and ANA. Could you talk with us about these funding initiatives and why they're so vital to the transformation uh, and evolution, I think, of our healthcare system and a system that will be able to meet our growing population health needs and Whatever happened to that workforce title within the Affordable Care Act? <laughs> so let's talk about that first. So okay. th- there, was, um, there was a recognition that we really don't have enough primary care practitioners. The truth of the matter is what really helps us be healthy uh, is good, comprehensive primary care. where Everyone has a, a medical home, a, a physician that they can call, a nurse practitioner they can engage with, uh, and in, a, in an environment in which everyone has access to, to, to health care, well, the Health Resources and Services Administration has a program to help build those resources. Some of them are scholarship programs. Some of them are, are specialty fellowship programs where people learn, um, you know, to focus on primary care. And so part of the Affordable Care Act was to build a workforce commission so as a nation we would think about what our new future needs were uh, and then to give advice to the government and the private sector on how to do that, what well, was authorized but never funded. And by the way, there are many things in the Affordable Care Act that were that were never funded. True, um, but these programs are, are are very good. I I did not go through the HRSA program, but I am a product of the military's version of that. I you know military paid my way to medical school, and when I left, I um, paid back time in the military. I had a wonderful experience. I trained in the military. Um, I think they made me a very competent physician. I served my nation. And I still interact with my former military colleagues um, because I have an understanding of military medicine. But what's important is medical school is eight years, mm-hmm. you know, college, medical school. And then if you do a, a residency or any kind of training, especially training at all, 
even to be a good primary care doctor, that's another three years or so. So it's a long time. You can leave school with two, $300,000 worth of debt. Paying that back is very, very tough. And uh, even for physicians and even with physician wages, and imagine the physician extenders, the nurse practitioners and physician's assistants, um, you know, they also um, incur additional debt by going to school. So, you know, these programs that HRSA has, they're scholarship programs. They help um, reduce the cost of going to school. Um, it's a, at the end of the day, you, you get people that are committed to going into underserved communities um, in many cases. They, they go into rural communities. They go into low-income communities. And they provide services to the population um, that, you know, tragically many of our, our clinicians uh, don't want to go into because um, they can't make the kind of money they can make on Madison Avenue or in Park Place or, you know, some of the more ritzy parts of our community. We're speaking today with Dr. Georges C. Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association since 2002. Dr. Benjamin served as Chief of Emergency Surgery at Walter Reed Army Medical Center and as former Secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. You know, Dr. Benjamin, we've uh, been... uh, sort of beating up on Congress uh, in terms of uh, some of the ideology. But there is a, 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 a ray of hope in its, uh, at the House Energy and Commerce Committee that's been promoting a bill that's been getting quite a lot of attention and, and a rare show of bipartisanship. Uh, and that's the 21st Century Cures Bill, which is aimed at uh, increasing funding for NIH research protocols and looking at ways to accelerate research to improve public health. And I should note that there's been a long history of, of uh, bipartisan uh, support for NIH. But you could, t- could you tell our listeners about the 21st Century Cures Bill and what gaps it may fill in areas where public health research has been undersupported in the past? Well, you know, we, we've um, we've been pushing very hard um, to try to um, get more support for the NIH. And you're right. Um, this is an area in which we've had enormous bipartisan support uh, from both sides of the political aisle. And I commend both sides of the political aisle for, for their support for, for medical research. Um, and the idea is that, you know, the NIH is, is our research engine. I mean, most folks don't really know a researcher, or at least they can't articulate one, and they don't really know how research gets done. Um, they don't know how the new drugs that um, the pharmaceutical industry comes out with um, happen. But the, but the fact of the matter is, is that all of that is driven by the investment that we have through the National Institute of Health. Uh, it is, in fact, not only just our nation, but it's the world's um, research engine. And a lot of things that, you know, a, a, a company's not going to invest in because, well, you know, the margin that you can make money on isn't great um, or not really there at all. Uh, the NIH can afford to do that kind of cutting-edge research and ask very important questions um, that nobody else will ask because they can't make a buck. Um, but then once they find the answer, they can, you know, work with industry <coughs> to, to actually um, grow that product. Um, and a, a lot of things have come out of that um, um, to, to, to try to make us healthy. Pharmaceuticals, devices, um, understanding of how, um, uh, how medicine works, how people take care of themselves, all those kinds of research things um, are often done out of the National Institute of Health. Now, 
over the last few years because of the how tight the budget has been, um, funding from the National Institute of Health has not only been flat, but if you correct for inflation, um, there's been regression in the amount of money that we've actually put on the table uh, for research. And the 21st century's bill is an attempt to try to begin to reverse that mm-hmm. um, that problem and begin to put more money into research. Um, it's for bench research, you know, the, ba- the basic stuff that, that we kind of think of all the egghead scientists doing. Um, but there's prevention research in there. There's um, funding there for the Food and Drug Administration. Um, you know, it, it's probably not the bill that I would have written um, as, a, as a very progressive person who thinks we ought to invest even more um, than was done. But I got to tell you, it is a great first start, mm-hmm. and um, I again commend both sides of the political aisle for for engaging um, with um, you know the um, this this legislation, and we're hoping that it it continues to move forward. Well, it's interesting uh, that you note that most people have never met a researcher, or if they did, they didn't know they'd met a researcher, uh, perhaps. But I think that might be equally true of public health specialists. You know, maybe people have known a public health nurse. Maybe they've known an epidemiologist. I'm not so sure. But I think the work of public health is when it's uh, being effective uh, is often unnoticed. I'm not sure people realize the impact of the public health system on the decreasing rates of tobacco use or violence or death in car accidents from seatbelt use or uh, uh, communicable illness or clean water, a whole host of other things. But you've set uh, a goal at APHA of creating the healthiest nation in one generation. You've served as the state of Maryland's health commissioner as well as in the District of Columbia. So you are firsthand familiar with public health infrastructure. What, what have you learned from these experiences, and how do you envision the public health infrastructure for the 21st century uh, and how it needs to evolve in a way that will help you meet that challenge of creating the healthiest nation in one generation? Well, you know, with the, with the fact that we now have the Affordable Care Act, um, and if, you know, hopefully at some point we can get everybody into the system. That means, of course, getting all the states that have not chosen to do the Medicaid expansion to do so. Um, and once we get everybody covered, in the public health community, we can step back, and we can do we can be the um, the data analyzers. We can look at systems change. Um, we can be the kind of the chief health strategist for the community, and help guide the community um, to making better choices. This is not um, you know this is not being the nanny factor, and this is not being the food police. Um, this is being good, giving good medical advice, uh, making sure people are aware. Um, of how they can improve their health, uh, and then creating the conditions for people can, that can be healthy. And that's what public health does best. Um, and, again, our best work is done when nothing happens. And of course, when mm-hmm. nothing happens, you don't get credit for it. Right. Um, but look at tobacco. You know, um, there's been a total change in public's perception of right. tobacco. Um, there was a time when 28% of the youth in this country smoked. Now that's down to around 8%. Um, we've still got a ways to go. But we've had an enormous change in people's perceptions on tobacco. Look at, look at um, automobile crashes. Uh, there was a time when um, automobile crashes um, were very, very high. And see, we, we, we redesigned the, the, the cars. We um, um, made people safer in their cars. We redesigned the roads. Um, you know, no longer do people get in their car and not buckle up with their seatbelt um, as a normative behavior. Now, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be... Your kids always say, you know, mom, dad, you got to buckle up. And right. we've changed the, the opinion of kids. Uh, and we've seen a, a marked decrease 
um, in the, the number of people who die or even severely injured in automobile crashes. Um, again, we still have a ways to go, but that's because of, of comprehensive work around public health. And it's not just us, by the way. Um, we work across sectors. There are lots of other people involved in this process um, to make us healthy. We've been speaking today with Dr. Georges C. Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. You can learn more about their work by going to APHA.org, or you can follow them on Twitter at Public Health. Dr. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Hillary Clinton said that late-term abortions are because of medical necessity. There is a lack of research on that topic, but what research we do have doesn't support her claim. Clinton, who's running for the Democratic nomination for president, made the claim on CBS's Face the Nation when she was asked whether she supported a federal limit on abortion at any stage. A spokesman for her campaign told us that she meant that many late-term abortions, not all or even most, are because of medical reasons. But that's not what she said. Let's look at the available research. The Guttmacher Institute, which researches reproductive health and abortion, says that only 1.2% of all abortions in the country occur after 20 weeks gestation, a time at which some states prohibit abortion. There is no information on how many of those are because of a medical reason, which would usually be a severe fetal anomaly or a risk to the life of the mother. One study published in Guttmacher's peer-reviewed journal in 2013 looked at why women sought late-term abortions, but it specifically excluded women who did so for medical reasons. The primary finding, though, was that women who had later abortions did so for similar reasons as those who had abortions early in their pregnancies. Those who delayed were more likely to be younger, with limited finances, and with logistical challenges such as lengthy travel to an abortion provider. So that study at least shows that there are women getting a late-term abortion for non-medical reasons. One of the authors of the study told us women who seek an abortion for life endangerment reasons would be treated under emergent circumstances at hospitals instead of at an abortion clinic, making data on such cases hard to obtain. Forty-three states now prohibit abortion after a certain point in a pregnancy. All of them have exceptions when the life of the mother is endangered. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Greenwich, Connecticut teen Olivia Hallisey watched the Ebola epidemic unfold in Africa, she wondered, along with the rest of the world, what might be done to run interference against this highly contagious and often fatal disease. And as the World Health Community struggled to contain the outbreak, she wondered, what was missing? 
what might improve outcomes in a severe public health crisis like the Ebola epidemic. She learned that the Ebola diagnostic tests were not only expensive but relied on refrigeration, and that's something that can be hard to find in many of the affected communities. Her answer? Go to work trying to develop a cheap early diagnostic testing device that would give healthcare workers in the field a huge weapon in battling the disease, early diagnosis and treatment, even in asymptomatic people, thus reducing the spread of the infection. I began looking at how we could slow the outbreaks and control them more. And then I found the best way to do that is through asymptomatic diagnosis. So you diagnose the person before they're able to spread it to other people. The then 15-year-old, working with her Greenwich High School Science Department, Research new ways to look at cheap, common materials that might replace the existing diagnostic system. She combines some known technologies with new protein science to create a solution, a simple paper strip armed with proteins that could accurately diagnose the presence of the disease in a few short moments and with just a few drops of fluid. She called it the Ebola assay card. The most glaring problem I saw with Eliza Kit was the temperature dependency. I wanted to address this problem. I wanted to make the Eliza Kit temperature independent. So the result of this, um, all the aid worker would have to do would be pipe 30 microliters of water onto each load spot, and the center detection zone would indicate a positive result with a blue color change within 30 minutes. It's temperature stable. You don't need to be in a lab. All you need is water in the sample. You don't need the reagents anymore. And it's cheap because I actually ended up making the Ebola assay card of just filter paper on top of photo paper. Havasi's Ebola testing device earned the grand prize at the Google Global Science Fair and a $50,000 college scholarship along with it. Halsey says her testing device can be easily adapted to other difficult-to-diagnose conditions such as Lyme disease, an inexpensive, easy-to-produce testing strip that can be deployed to disease hotspots around the world, offering early diagnosis and a chance for early treatment for a variety of illnesses and conditions. Well, it's still in the pipeline, but we're wishing her well, and that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.